in 2019. So far, we have looked at Abraham's story in Genesis. We did the book of Jonah. Uh, we just finished the wisdom book of Ecclesiastes. I thought, let's just continue this Old Testament role. And today we're going to look at the book of Ruth. There are several reasons why I feel led to talk about this book, besides just that it's in the Old Testament. And one of them is that I think this, this book has power to show us how rich and intercon interconnected, that's a good word, interconnected uh, the Bible is. Good start here. Okay. Um, because this is one of those books where you can't really fully appreciate it unless you recognize the larger story that it's a part of. The book of Ruth on its own is a story, but it really comes alive when you recognize the larger story it's a part of. And so to help us to do that, we're not going to start by reading from the book of Ruth. We're going to go all the way back to the first book of the Bible, to the book of Genesis. And a while ago, we did our series on the life of Abraham, and hopefully you remember that God called Abraham when he was 75 years old to leave his homeland, leave his household, and go to a, a new place, start a new life. And he promised that through Abraham, a new nation would come that would bless the entire world, right? Remember that? Do we remember that? Okay. Now, when Abraham left home, he brought his nephew Lot and Lot's family. And what I want you to remember when you think of Lot is Lot had a lot of problems, okay? Um, so he brought some drama with him. And listen to this. This is from Genesis chapter 13. It records some of that drama. Now Lot, who was moving about with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents. But the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. Moving ahead to, to verse 8. So Abram said to Lot, let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herdsmen and mine, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I will go to the right. If you go to the right, I will go to the left. And I want you to lock that phrase into your brains right now, okay? If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I will go to the left. God called Abraham to be the start of this new special tribe of people, this new nation, and very early on we're seeing that tribe split already, okay? So remember that. So we're told that Lot then agrees with this proposal, and he goes and he sets up his tents near the city of Sodom, which is a very wicked city. If you've heard of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Very bad place. In fact, it is so thoroughly wicked that God decides to destroy it. But before he does, he sends angels to warn Lot and his family to get out of there. And as they are making their exit, Lot's wife disobeys the angel's instructions, and she looks back at the city, and she dies. So now Lot and his daughters come out of Sodom, and they set up camp somewhere in the mountains, all alone. And uh, then things get weirder. Um, <laughs> in Genesis 19, we're told that uh, Lot's daughters are concerned that if they're all alone, living alone, that the family line is not going to continue. So they manipulate their father through alcohol into committing incest with them. Uh, probably not what it, you expected to hear coming to church this morning. 
verse 36 in uh, chapter 19 says, So both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. The older daughter had a son, and she named him Moab. He is the father of the Moabites today. Now, why do I tell you this sordid story this morning? The reason is because Moab is going to be mentioned in the book of Ruth. And when you hear Moab, I don't want you to just think of some random place in the Middle East. I want you to hear Moab, and I want you to think of what the Israelites would have thought of when they heard of Moab. The Israelites would have thought of a very wicked place. They would think of a place that finds its origins in separation from Israel. Right? A place that finds its origins in nearness to Sodom and in perversity and sin. I want us to recognize that the Israelites would think of Moab as their enemy. Okay? Because if we recognize these things, then the book of Ruth is going to mean a lot more to us. So with all that in mind, if you want to follow along in your own Bible, open up to the book of Ruth. Uh, it's a little book near the beginning of the Bible, right after the book of Judges. As you make your way there, I'll say a quick prayer for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word, uh, and I pray that this morning, as we read it, you would give us insight, that you would illuminate it by the power of your Holy Spirit that it would be uh, life for us spiritually, and um, that you would al we would allow it to transform us, transform our thinking, tr transform our behavior in any way that you see fit. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, taking it from the top. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab. They went to Moab and lived there. So I'll stop here for a moment. We're told that this happened in the days when the judges ruled. And this period of time is recounted in, guess what, the book of Judges. And if you read the book of Judges, it reads like an HBO drama or something. It's filled with violence and sexual stuff. And, and, and people, when they don't know much about the Bible, they might come across Judges and they'd be like, oh, the Bible's just terrible. Well, this period of time is a particularly ugly time in Israel's history, and it's not it is not presented to us as a good time in the scriptures. In fact, in Judges, it repeatedly says that during that time, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. In other words, no one was looking to something outside themselves for direction on how they ought to live. They weren't looking to God. They weren't looking to any moral codes. They were just thinking, what profits me? And they were acting on it. And that was leading to a very wicked, violent society. It was like the Wild West. You know, life was cheap. And in that cruel, violent time, a famine struck the land. And it hit the city of Bethlehem, which is ironic because Bethlehem actually means house of bread. But 
at the time, there wasn't much bread in the house of bread. And so one man and his, fa his family decided to leave. And you know they were de very, very desperate because what did they do? They decided to leave and take refuge in Moab, right? The land of Moab. And what any good Israelite is going to hear when they hear this part of the story is that this family went looking for food in the house of sin. Now, of course, Israel is a pretty sinful place right now, too, but Moab would have been seen as a step in the wrong direction. So, continuing in verse 3. Now, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about ten years, both Malon and Kilian also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. So Naomi has lost everyone that she came to Moab with, right? The only family that she has now are these Moabite daughters-in-law, the widows of her dead sons. Continuing in verse 6. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them, and they wept aloud and said to her, we will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it is more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. At this, they wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Okay, let's stop here. This is a beautiful passage, and I want to make sure that we appreciate it as much as possible. So Ruth declares her loyalty to her mother-in-law. And this is remarkable. Okay? It's remarkable for at least three reasons. If you're taking notes, you can write these down. First, because we are seeing here a Moabite demonstrate great love for an Israelite. We're seeing a Moabite demonstrate great love for an Israelite. Now, why do I call it great love? I call it great love because it's sacrificial. 
we might not realize this, but for Ruth to say, I'm going to stick with you, Naomi, is incredibly costly for her. In those days, marriage was a woman's source of security and financial stability. And Ruth's best chance for getting remarried is not to stick with her Israelite mother-in-law. Her best chance for getting remarried is to stick in Moab, right? Because otherwise, she's going to have to find an Israelite who's willing to marry a Moabite in Israel. And not only that, she needs to find an Israelite who's willing to take care of this mother-in-law that's not really related to her, right? So she's really lowering her chances of getting remarried, and in so doing, she is lowering her chances of having financial security and stability in her life. Never, to mi- never mind the fact that she's leaving her homeland, leaving her Moabite family, completely changing her scenery, right? So Ruth's pledge of loyalty is this incredible act of love. It's a great sacrifice. Um, Naomi doesn't have any money or land to give her. Ruth is clinging to Naomi. Why? Because she loves her. That's the only explanation that makes sense. Because she loves Naomi. And this is extra significant because Ruth is a Moabite. And Israelites don't expect sacrificial love from Moabites. When they think of Moabites, they think of what we talked about at the beginning of the sermon. Okay? Second, Ruth's pledge of loyalty is remarkable because through it, we are seeing a Moabite pledging to follow the God of Israel. We are seeing a Moabite pledge to follow the God of Israel. So this is not just a pledge to Naomi. This is a pledge to Naomi's God. She says, your people will be my people and your God my God. And then she does something very significant. She uses the Israelite name for God. Notice she says, May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. And that choice of the word Lord is very significant. You might notice that in your Bibles it's in all caps, right? And what that means is that when that word is translated from the Hebrew, the Hebrew word there is Yahweh. And Yahweh is the Israelites' personal name for God. God is very impersonal. It's like a a title, right? Um, Kind of like creator. It's a very general word. But Yahweh is very personal and significant. When someone uses the name Yahweh, they are acknowledging the reality of the God who spoke to Moses through the burning bush, the God who led the Israelites out of Egypt the God who's revealed through the history of Israel. And here, Ruth is using that name for God, and she's saying, may that God hold me accountable if I don't uphold this pledge. So you could say that right here, this is Ruth's announcement of conversion. Conversion from Moabite faith to Israelite faith. And what I find interesting is Ruth is not converting because Naomi is a good evangelist. (laughs) <laughs> right? Because Naomi says, your sister-in-law is going back to her gods. Go back with her. Right? That's good evangelism. Go worship your other gods. Don't worry about my God. But Ruth decides, in spite of Naomi, that she wants to put her trust and hope in Israelites' God. She's going to convert. And then the third reason that Ruth's pledge of loyalty is remarkable is because through it, 
And listen to this. this. I think this is really cool. Through it, we are seeing the reversal of the family fracture that occurred about 700 years ago. We are seeing the reversal of the family fracture that occurred about 700 years ago. Remember, back in Genesis, Abraham said to Lot, let's go our separate ways. You go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Remember, I told you to remember that. And what do we have here? Here we have a descendant of Lot, Ruth, a Moabite, talking to a descendant of Abraham. Right? And this time, the descendant of Lot is saying to the descendant of Abraham, where you go, I will go. If you go to the left, I will go to the left. If you go to the right, I will go to the right. You see, when you look at this story in the context of the bigger story that it's a part of, it becomes even more meaningful. Because this isn't just the story of a really faithful daughter-in-law. It is that, but it's more than that, right? This is the story of a rift in a family being healed generations later, centuries later. Something that was undone long ago is being put, put back together by the providential hand of God. All right, so let's keep reading in verse 19. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the, the women exclaimed, Can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth, the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as the barley harvest was beginning. So here we see that as Naomi returns to her homeland, she is broken and hopeless. Because she says, don't call me Naomi anymore. Naomi actually means pleasant. Whenever you hear Naomi, you should hear pleasant. And she's like, yeah, you know, that doesn't really describe me anymore. A better name is Mara, which means bitter. She is self-identifying as a bitter woman. I'm bitter, she says. And I get the impression from her words that some of her bitterness is directed towards God, right? She talks about God a lot, and she's always connecting God and her misfortune, right? The Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune and upon me. And maybe some of us can relate to that when things go wrong in our lives. We're like, ah, oh, God has really screwed things up here for me. But in spite of Naomi's hopelessness and bitterness, God has a plan to provide for her. And the rest of this book is all about how Ruth and Naomi's fortune reverses. This is a, a story of the reversal of fortune. And I encourage you to read the whole story uh, sometime on your own. But because we have a very limited amount of time this morning, I'm going to give a very bare-bones summary of most of the rest of the text. So what happens is, naturally, Ruth and Naomi need to eat as we all do, and they don't really have a source of income, how are they going to provide for themselves? Well, what they do is Ruth uh, goes out into the fields to pick up any leftover grain. Uh, back in those days, there was a law in the scriptures 
that said that farmers were supposed to leave the grain that fell during the harvest and allow the poor to come and pick it up, which was, you know, I, I think a, a, a very uh, brilliant way for God to solve a, a social problem, the problem of, of the poor, and to give them some dignity in doing work to get their food, right, because they had to come and, and pick it up. And if people were obedient to that law, I don't know if they all were, in fact, the text suggests that some of them weren't. Uh, but if people were obedient to that law, then people who were in need, like Ruth, had a chance to, to gather some food. And so Ruth goes to do this, and she ends up gathering grain in the fields of a man uh, named Boaz. Fields belonging to a guy named Boaz. And when Boaz notices Ruth, he goes out of his way to make her feel welcome and safe. He tells all the other people, you know, don't touch her, don't bother her. If she needs anything, give it to her. Uh, he says, you can drink from my water jugs, which I imagine must have been a huge win for someone who's gathering in the hot sun in those days. And Ruth can't help but ask Boaz when he, she meets him, you know, why are you showing such favor to a foreigner like me? That's the word she used, foreigner. Why are you showing such favor to me? And here's what Boaz says. I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. How you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So word has gotten around town about Ruth and Naomi. And Boaz hears that story and he thinks, wow, Ruth is, Ruth is a woman of great character. He's impressed by her loyalty for all the reasons that we talked about earlier. Right? He recognizes the sacrificial love that Ruth is showing to Naomi, that she's left everything familiar and converted to a new faith. He, he recognizes that this is a woman of remarkable character, and he wants to help her. And so, to make a long story short, I'm skipping over a lot here, Ruth ends up proposing marriage to Boaz. Not usually the way we think of it as working, but that's what happens. Ruth proposes marriage, and Boaz is very flattered. And he accepts, and he ends up providing the security and financial stability uh, that both Naomi and Ruth needed. Here's the way the story ends. Skip ahead to uh, chapter 4, starting in verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. Then he went to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons. It's hard to understate what a remarkable statement that is in those days when sons were all, you know, you wanted to have sons, right? But, he, but this says, you, you as a daughter-in-law, you are more valuable than seven sons. Um, you have given him birth. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, and cared for him. 
So because Ruth has been loyal to Naomi and, and converted to Israel's God, she is now able to give Naomi a grandchild, something Naomi never thought she'd be able to have after her sons died. Beautiful reversal of misfortune, right? But there's more. Okay, the story ends with a little piece of information that would have been shocking to any Israelite, a shocking surprise. And it connects this story to the bigger story of the Bible. Verse 17 says, The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, if you know anything about the bigger story of the Bible, you know that David is a big deal, right? He's one of the most important characters in the Bible. David becomes a great king over Israel. So this is not just a story about two poor women having a reversal of fortune. It is that. But it's also the story of how King David's great-grandparents got together. It's a family story. But it's even more than that, right? Because it's through King David's line that Jesus eventually is born. If you skip ahead all the way to the New Testament, to the Gospel of Matthew, it starts with Jesus' genealogy. And look what it includes. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. And then it works its way down to Jesus. And isn't it interesting that it specifically mentions Ruth? Usually it just goes through the father. They just mention the father. But it, it, it clarifies, oh, whose mother was Ruth, the Moabite. So not only did Ruth have a part to play in bringing joy to Naomi's life, but she also had a part to play in blessing the entire world because it is through Jesus that salvation comes to the world. So what does this all mean for us? Besides that, the Bible is a rich and interconnected story, and we need to realize how amazing it is and study it deeply. And, uh, besides that, there's a couple more things I'd like to draw from this story. We'll do this quickly. First, this story reminds us that God is at work behind the scenes in ordinary events. God is at work behind the scenes in ordinary events. This is a very simple story. And if you read it without any of the larger story in view, you might be like, why is this even here? <laughs> you know, it's, I mean, it's, it's a good story that this bad things happened to these women and then things worked out for them. But, you know, why is it in the Bible, right? On the surface, it doesn't seem like it's recording any major events in Israel's history. There's no direct words from God in this book. God actually isn't even mentioned a lot, right? And yet, it's clear that we're supposed to recognize that in these very ordinary events, God is at work weaving a tapestry. We talked throughout the series in Ecclesiastes about how we're supposed to believe that God is weaving the events that are taking place into a beautiful tapestry. And in this story, in these ordinary events of death, marriage, birth, the groundwork is being laid for the Messiah and the salvation of the world in these very simple things. And that's, that should be a reminder for us, okay? The attitude of faith is the attitude that chooses to see life this way, 
that chooses to see life not just as a meaningless series of, of events or as some search for personal pleasure or happiness, but as something that God is working through, often imperceptibly, to bring redemption and joy. Even in life's tragedies, God can bring something out of those that is good and beautiful, like he did for Ruth and Naomi. Another thing I want us to notice is that this story reminds us to treat foreigners well. Treat foreigners well. Ruth is a foreigner, and not only is she a foreigner, but she's a foreigner from a group of people who were looked down upon with contempt, right? And yet the Bible presents her as loving, sacrificial, loyal, willing to follow the true God, and the great-grandmother of one of the greatest Israelites who ever lived. And then Boaz, a man who goes out of his way to show kindness to this foreigner, is commended for that. He's referred to as a man of good character. So clearly, God is challenging us through this book to turn from our tribalistic impulses. That's what I would call them, our tribalistic impulses. And what I mean by that is our impulse to care only for our own, right? Our own people, our own country. There was a study that was done recently by a group called the Pew Research Survey. And according to their research, we should probably take this with a grain of salt, but according to their research, 51% of Americans think we have a mortal responsibility to accept refugees. So about half of Americans, when they hear the question, do you think we have a moral res responsibility to care for refugees? Their answer is yes. But guess which subgroup in America they found to be the least likely to say we have a moral responsibility to accept refugees? White evangelicals. White evangelicals. The study claims that only about 25% of white evangelical Christians respond positively to the statement, we have a moral responsibility to accept refugees. Now get this. The study said that the group that is most likely to say that we have a moral obligation to accept refugees are Americans with no religious affiliation. And in that group, 65% of religiously non-affiliated people uh, said, yes, we do have a moral responsibility to care for refugees. So one in four white evangelicals say yes, but nearly two in three religiously non-affiliated say yes. Now, I don't, I don't understand the results of this survey entirely, and I don't, I don't want to make complex um, complex issues, overly simplistic. But I'll be honest, it makes me sad to think that the church would have less compassion for the foreigner than the world. Uh, maybe some of us need to hear what the book of Ruth is saying, that God delights in upsetting our tribalistic impulses. He challenges them. Because in this story, he exalts the humble foreigner, right? The Moabite. He, he gives the humble foreigner a role in the redemption of an Israelite woman and in the redemption of the world, 
right? And he commends Boaz, the man who helps her, who takes pity on her. So, something to think about. And then finally, one more thing this story should remind us of is that we all need a redeemer. Many people have seen this story as an allegory for the gospel, and I don't think that is a stretch at all. Ruth and Naomi need salvation, right? And Boaz serves as a redeemer. Uh, he's actually referred to in the book as something called a kinsman redeemer. A kinsman redeemer. Uh, a kinsman redeemer was someone in your family, a kin, right? Someone related to you, who if tragedy struck, if there was a great loss, that person swept in and took care of the problem. A kinsman redeemer might be somebody who is in the family who, who marries uh, another widow, a widow in the family. Um, and what I want us to see is that in this story, because a kinsman redeemer comes to the rescue, it's a foreshadowing of Jesus because Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. He's our kinsman, right, because he is God in the flesh. God takes on a human body, becomes one of us, he becomes our kin, right? And then, as our kin, he redeems us by paying the price for our sin and by conquering death and the devil through the cross. So the story of Ruth and Boaz foreshadows the true kinsman redeemer that is revealed in Jesus. And when we look back on it, from the context of the bigger story, we can see that. And we can go, oh yeah, wow. I see what this is pointing towards. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us to appreciate the Bible. I pray that you would help us to see that it is often deeper and richer and um, more detailed than we realize. I pray that we'd read it and we'd see, we'd connect the dots, we'd see the ways that it reveals that your Holy Spirit is at work in human events all throughout history, throughout hundreds of years, weaving them together into a beautiful tapestry. Lord, we thank you for being our kinsman redeemer for rescuing us when we were hopeless and in need and hungry spiritually. I pray that this story would give us hope this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.